Thank you for tuning in to a Centerpoint Church message. Our mission is to help you take the next step in your relationship with God. We hope this message achieves that and inspires you to both grow in your faith and live it out today. Enjoy. Anyways, uh, enjoy Amy Holly. She's an amazing speaker. I learned so much from Amy. I'm excited to learn with you today as she speaks. I don't know about that introduction there. I feel like he basically just set you up for a lot of boredom, didn't he? Like Bible nerd lady. Um, as Aaron said, this is the conclusion of the blockbusters, explosive stories of difference makers. And I thought maybe since it was the end of the series that there would be like some explosives of some sort. But it didn't seem like that was in the budget. So today instead we are going to cover um, an account in the Bible of Hezekiah that I honestly think beats any Hollywood special effects hands down because God did it. It's pretty cool. But if we could pray first, that would be great. Father, um, thank you so much. For this gathering of people, I pray this morning, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, that your word would be used through the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to um, impress upon us how much you love us and how you want us to grow as your followers. I pray that the Holy Spirit would take these words and make them more than just words from a human mouth like mine, and that they would instead be words that come from you to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you know how sometimes when you um, like watch a movie, especially like a really epic series, um, how they'll sometimes not start with the opening scene. Instead, they will like give you some background information. Like, for example, the Lord of the Rings trilogy doesn't start with the opening scene with Gandalf asking Frodo to take the ring to Mount Doom. Instead, there's like this whole montage of epic scenes, and then Kate Blanchett like does this voiceover narration that tells you why the ring actually came to exist and why it has to be destroyed. Or how about um, Star Wars movies? You know, every Star Wars movie begins with that familiar and then has like those floating words, right? You recognize right away that that's a Star Wars movie and they tell you what's kind of happening at this point in the saga. And that kind of info is pretty helpful. Maybe there will be explosives, I don't know. <laughs> That sounds like a scary thing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Anyways, background info is really, really helpful. So today we're going to talk about, like Aaron said, Hezekiah. But before we get into his story, I'm actually going to spend a pretty good chunk of time going over some background information because I'd like to give you some historical context and some information about Hezekiah's, Hezekiah's family because I think that those two things will really help us understand why his actions are actually pretty significant. So first we're going to look at the historical context. We're actually going to go back several hundred years before Hezekiah to the time of Moses, to about 1450 BC-ish. Um, Moses at this point um, has just led the Israelites, God's chosen people, out of slavery in Egypt. And they're about to enter the Promised Land. But before they settle into this new home and become their own new nation, the Israelites really have to be taught how to live as God's people. Um, so Moses, instead of taking them straight to the promised land, he re leads them in this roundabout way, directed by God, to a place called Mount Sinai in the Arabian, Pen Arabian Peninsula. And there at Mount Sinai, God gives this new nation of people a set of laws. And these laws are designed to set them apart as his very own people because, quite honestly, they're living in a time and a place where most people worshipped a whole bunch of false gods, and they practiced some pretty gnarly things as part of their worship of these gods. Things like child sacrifice, 
and some sexual orgy kind of stuff and divination. And God wants his people to know that he is very different than these false gods. And worshiping him looks a lot different. And so he wants to teach them how to reflect his heart and character so they, they can be a community that shines the light to the nations around them. So God gives them all these laws and commands to follow. And he actually makes a covenant with them. The Bible usually, or Bible scholars, this word isn't found in the Bible, but Bible scholars usually call this the Mosaic Covenant. As, this, as part of this covenant, um, God promises to richly bless the Israelites and to give them a good long life in this new land where he's taking them if, and that's a big if, if they love him with all their heart and they choose to follow his commands. If, however, they choose instead to imitate the rather evil practices of the people around them, he says there will be devastating consequences for them individually and as a nation because quite frankly, sin, God doesn't like it because it always devastates. Now, if you look at the Bible, this is not the only covenant that God makes with either a nation or with an individual. And most of the covenants that God makes in the pages of the Bible are actually unconditional. In other words, God promises to do something, and those promises are going to be fulfilled no matter what humans do. God is just going to rely on his character and his faithfulness. This covenant, however, the Mosaic Covenant, is actually conditional. The Israelites were promised blessings amazing blessings if they followed but like i said those blessings required their obedience um, in deuteronomy 30 um, moses reminds the israelites of the terms of this covenant and he urges them he's like choose wisely here's what he says he says now listen today i am giving you a choice between life and death between prosperity and disaster for i command you this day to love the lord your god and to keep his commands if you do this, the Lord, your God, will bless you and your land. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you're drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you right now that you will certainly be destroyed. Today, I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Oh, that you would choose life. I feel like I say that to my kids sometimes. Oh, I've given you a choice. Oh, that we would choose life. Now, not long after speaking these words, Moses dies, and a new leader named Joshua actually leads the people into the land. And as soon as they're settled there, it doesn't take long for them to start really struggling to live out their end of this covenant with God. And they end up going through these repeated cycles of following God for a time, and then getting kind of lazy and complacent because things are going well. And they end up falling into sin. They reap the really pretty consequences of that sin. They cry out to God for help, and God graciously rescues them through a leader called a judge. You guys apparently talked about one of these judges, Samson. They go through this cycle for a couple, or actually a few hundred years, the cycle of falling away and coming back. And after that time, the tribes of Israel, they are kind of getting tired of this being led by an unseen God thing. And so they say, you know what? The Amalekites have a king, and the... Canaanites have a king, and the Hittites have a king. We want a king that we can see. And so God actually says, you know what? I will give them what they want. So they give, God anoints a king named Saul, and Saul follows for a time and then completely falls away from God. So God anoints a new king to take his place, a young man named David, who comes to the throne around 1000 BC, give or take. Now God himself describes this man David, who you've probably heard of, 
as a man after my own heart. That's what God says about him. I'd love that to be said about me, right? A woman after God's own heart. Now, David was not perfect, not by a long shot, but he did love God. And God makes a covenant with David. And this time, it is an unconditional covenant. And Bible scholars usually call this the Davidic covenant. In this covenant, God promises that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And in the short term, this covenant ensures that David's dynasty is going to continue long after he is gone. But in the long-term, eternal perspective, this promise refers to Jesus, who would be a descendant of David and will reign forever. So David makes Jerusalem his capital city, and his son Solomon eventually succeeds him, and Solomon builds a temple there in Jerusalem where the people of God can meet with him and worship him and make sacrifices and celebrate all these festivals to the Lord as God commanded in the laws of Moses. And the nation of Israel does follow God and enjoys a time of unprecedented wealth and prosperity until shortly after Solomon's death when his son makes a very, very foolish decision that ends up splitting the nation into two completely separate countries. Now, Israel consisted of 12 tribes descended from the sons of Jacob. He had 12 sons, and those kind of basically made up the 12 tribes of Israel. When Solomon's son, Rehoboam, makes this dumb choice, two of the tribes, um, Judah and Benjamin, stay with David's grandson, Rehoboam, and they keep Jerusalem and its temple as their capital, and they end up calling themselves Judah after David's tribe. And they lived in the southern part of the land of Israel. And over the coming years, this separate country, Judah, is ruled by about 19 kings and one queen, and all those kings, as God promised, were descendants of David because of God's faithfulness, because quite honestly, only about eight out of those 20 followed God, and the others were rather wicked. Now, the other 10 tribes, I'm trying to remember what side they're on, so Judah in the south, the other 10 tribes of Israel, they reject Solomon's son, and they follow a guy named Rehoboam, or Jeroboam. That's hard to remember, right? Jeroboam and Rehoboam. You'd think that they would have some more, I don't know, diversity in their naming. Um, but they become their own country, um, the northern kingdom. They actually keep the name Israel, and eventually they adopt a city called Samaria as their capital. But because the temple is located down in Jerusalem, in Judah's territory, Jeroboam thinks, you know what, if the people start going back to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, I'm going to lose them, and they're going to return to David's family. So I'm going to set up a new place of worship. He actually builds two golden calves, and he sets them up, and he tells the people in this northern kingdom that they don't have to go all the way to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. Instead, he says, you know what, hear, O Israel. Now, this sounds weird to us because we don't worship idols anymore, but in those days, people really, truly believed that their gods were invited by these statues. So this was not uncommon. They were just kind of imitating the culture that was all around them. He's like, Israel, listen, these two calves, these are the physical embodiment of the God that led you out of Egypt. You, can, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. You can worship right here. And this was strictly forbidden by the laws of God. He said, don't make yourself an idol in any form. Worship me. So this kicks off, this action of Jeroboam ends up kicking off a couple centuries of idol worship and a series of 19 evil kings in Israel, which caused God's people in the northern kingdom to completely fall away from him. They practice all sorts of things that break God's heart. And the Lord just keeps on sending multiple prophets over and over again to warn them, you guys, I love you, come back to me. 
You are in danger of suffering the consequences I warned you against, but they absolutely refuse to listen. So this is part of Hezekiah's backstory. This is the time and the culture into which he was born. While things are going very rapidly downhill in the northern kingdom, Hezekiah ends up becoming one of the kings of the southern kingdom. He was the 13th king of Judah. He was a descendant of David, and he ruled, scholars kind of estimate, guesstimate based on historical events, probably from about 714 to 686 BC, give or take. But it does appear that there is some overlap with his father. Um, he and his dad Ahaz apparently co-reigned together from about 727 to 714 based on the events. And that brings us to another huge part of Hezekiah's story, which is true of all of us as well, right? The family that he was born to. All of us are affected by the family into which we're born. Now, if you read the Bible's accounts of all those kings of Judah and Israel who ruled during this time, you'll notice that each one in the Bible is introduced with like a summary statement of whether or not they followed God. Um, and then they list their deeds. So here is what is written about Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz. This is what it says in 2 Chronicles 28. It says, Ahaz, Hezekiah's dad, did not do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord as his ancestor David had done. Instead, he followed the example of the kings of Israel. He cast metal images for the worship of Baal. That's a false god. He even sacrificed his own sons in the fire. Um, this is a reference to child worship, was, which was frequently done at that time to a god named Moloch. In this way, Ahaz followed the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. King Ahaz of Judah encouraged his people to sin and had been utterly unfaithful to the Lord. Even during the time of trouble, when he was attacked by Assyria, King Ahaz continued to reject the Lord. Instead, he offered sacrifices to the god of Damascus, who had already defeated him. For he said to himself, well, since these gods helped the kings of Aram, they'll help me too if I sacrifice to them. But instead, they led to his ruin and the ruin of all Judah. King Ahaz took the various articles from the temple of God and broke them into pieces. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple so that no one could worship there. He set up altars to pagan gods in every corner of Jerusalem. He made pagan shrines in all the towns of Judah for offering sacrifices to other gods. And in this way, he aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of his ancestors. Now clearly, Ahaz like, had an utter disregard for God, utter disregard for the covenant God had made with them, and quite honestly, this is true of most of the kings of Israel and Judah. But what makes Ahaz's behavior particularly foolish is the fact that he watched firsthand as God did exactly what he said he would do if his people turned away from him. Because in the year 722 B.C., as Ahaz and Hezekiah have this co-regency reign together, the northern kingdom of Israel, the other ten tribes, were attacked and destroyed by Assyria, and that nation, those ten tribes, were wiped out, never to return. The Israelites that you read about in the New Testament, they are from Judah, and whatever survivors remained after Assyria attacked the northern kingdom. Now, many of the people who lived in the northern kingdom were deported to other parts of Assyria. Um, new people were brought into the area to live there so that eventually the land that the Israelite, the northern kingdom, occupied was eventually full of all these intermarried people, both Jewish and people from all these other nations. And so the people there followed a mix then of Jewish and pagan practices. And by the way, I mentioned earlier the capital city of Jerusalem was called, or I'm sorry, capital city of Israel was Samaria. 
And you might recognize that name from the New Testament because Jesus frequently interacted with people who are called Samaritans. The Samaritans were the descendants of these Israelites who had intermarried with other nations and kind of half followed God and half followed others. The Jews despised them, but Jesus loved them. But that's a side note. The important thing I want you to see is the Bible's explanation for why Israel was destroyed. God made it so clear. 2 Kings 17 says, This disaster came upon the people of Israel in the north because they worshipped other gods. They sinned against the Lord their God. They followed the practices of the pagan nations. And they had also secretly themselves done many things that were not pleasing to the Lord their God. Again and again, the Lord had sent his prophets to warn both Israel and Judah, but the Israelites would not listen. They rejected his decrees. They rejected the covenant he had made with their ancestors, and they despised all his warnings. They worshipped worthless idols, so they became worthless themselves. They followed the example of the nations around them. They disobeyed the Lord's command not to imitate those nations. They did not turn from these sins until the Lord finally swept them away from his presence, just as all the prophets had warned. Now, I realize that we haven't even gotten to Hezekiah yet. We will. But that right there is a really sobering passage, isn't it? It's sobering to me because I know that I myself am so prone to turn away from God and follow worthless things instead. So I want to stop right here with a question that I think is very relevant to you and I, and the question is this. Do I take God's words and warnings seriously? You know, God clearly, clearly told them what would happen if they chose to just go along with their evil culture instead of choosing to follow his good commands. But it says they despised all of these warnings and they chose worthless man-made stuff over the one true God that loved them and chose them to be his very own. My family recently went to Colorado, and while we were driving through the mountains, we were kind of laughing at all these warning signs that, like, you would never see here in Wisconsin. Like, one like this, it says, watch for moose in the roadway. We wish that we had seen a moose in the roadway, to be honest. How about this one? Avalanche area, no stopping or standing. I'm thinking if I saw avalanche coming, I would not stop or stand. And this one, we were driving through a canyon, and they actually, I couldn't find a copy of the sign, but they had, like, a picture of, like, a hill and a little man crawling up and it said in case a flood climb to safety now let me tell you if I saw an avalanche or a thousand pound moose or a flash flood coming my way I would not just proceed as usual I would stop and I would do what the stinking sign said wouldn't you and yet when God warns me things like when he warns me that I actually will be accountable for every careless word that comes out of my mouth, or when he warns me to not be obsessed with accumulating more and more stuff because it's all going to end up in a landfill someday, or when God tells me that I should not be conformed to the culture around me, but instead I should be transformed by the renewing of my mind, or when he warns me that I should not call evil things good and good things evil, when he tells me to be careful how I live instead of acting thoughtlessly, or when he tells me very, very clearly that one day Jesus himself will return as King of kings and Lord of lords and fulfill everything that he's ever promised about the future, despite all these clear warnings from the Lord in scripture, sometimes, quite frankly, I live my life as if they're not really true. 
And I might not be bowing down to silver statues or false gods, but I can just as willingly give my heart to things far less than God who gave his son for me. I can be just as foolish and short-sighted and comfortable in an ungodly culture as those ancient Israelites were. And I don't want to be like that. I don't want to just like blow through God's words and his warnings. Because you know what? If he has loved me and chosen me to be his very own, and he has, and he has for you too, if that is true, why would I live as if his words were irrelevant to my life? So I really need to ask myself repeatedly, like on a regular basis, like do I really take God's word? Do I take his warning seriously in my life? Do I act as if he doesn't mean what he said in the Bible? Or do I really live and not just believe in my head, but live my life as if everything that he says is true and will come to pass? And do I intentionally arrange my life around what he says is good and right and valuable? I think these are really good questions for us to honestly ponder. Because if God really is who he says he is in the Bible, then everything that he's ever said or promised will actually happen. All right, now we're going to go back to Hezekiah. We're actually going to talk about Hezekiah now. And I promise, I've arranged my message knowing that this was coming. So you won't be here for till noon, I promise. To say that uh, Hezekiah did not have much of a role model in his father is kind of an understatement, right? I mean, he did not hit the jackpot in the dad department. As far as Hezekiah's mom goes, we don't know much. Um, his mom was a lady named Abijah, or Abi, she's called in different passages. She was the daughter of a man named Zechariah, who may or may not have been associated with the prophet Isaiah. We just really don't know. All we do know for certain about Hezekiah's mom, Abijah, is this. She was married to a very, very wicked man, but yet somehow managed to raise a very godly son, because that is how Hezekiah is described. In 2 Kings 18, it says, Hezekiah did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, and he carefully obeyed all the commands that the Lord had given Moses. So the Lord was with him, and Hezekiah was successful in everything that he did. So Hezekiah... In Hezekiah, we have this guy who had a rather despicable dad, but despite those, those genes, he chooses to follow God and his commands. And I really, really hope that you will take time. I, I want to give you just like a little taste of Hezekiah in hopes that you will read his full story maybe in the coming weeks. You can find it in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Isaiah. If you want to write those little passages down, you can. I'll leave them up for a while. But here are some of the things that Hezekiah did during his life. In the first month of his reign as king, he reopened the temple that his father had shut. He cleaned it up, and he rededicated it as a place of worship to the Lord. He tore down all the places of idol worship in the land, just ripped them out and said, we're not doing this anymore. Um, Ahaz had kind of abused the priesthood. Um, instead, Hezekiah restored the priests to the role that God had given them. He encouraged the priests to pursue holiness and to lead the nation in worshiping God again. And at one point, he invites all the land of Judah, along with anybody who survived the Assyrian attack in Israel, and he says, you know what, you guys, we haven't been celebrating the Passover. 
Let's get together in Jerusalem. Let's celebrate it. They had to do it a month late because they weren't ready, but they did it. And they celebrated it in a way that it hadn't been celebrated in over 200 years. He did all this stuff and more. Second Chronicles 31 sums it up when it says this. It says, King Hezekiah did what was pleasing and good in the sight of the Lord his God in all that he did in the service of the temple of God and in his efforts to follow God's laws and commands, Hezekiah sought his God wholeheartedly. And as a result, he was very successful. Now, was Hezekiah perfect? Nope. If you read his entire story, you'll see he made some missteps along the way, just like the rest of us do. But notice that it says Hezekiah sought the Lord wholeheartedly. The direction, the inclination of his heart was towards the Lord, which sounds an awful lot like David, right, who is a man after God's own heart. We see that Hezekiah chose to reject the example of his own father, and instead he went the way of his ancestor David. And that brings me to a second question for us to think about, which is this. Who am I imitating when it comes to pursuing God? Who am I imitating when it comes to pursuing God? I don't know what kind of faith example any of you in this room, well, I guess a couple of you I know, but most of you, I don't know the faith example that you had from your own parents or grandparents. Now, if you had amazing role models of faith in your family, that is such a gift. You just thank God for that legacy and you imitate that wholehearted devotion to the Lord that was lived out in front of you and you thank God for it. But if you did not grow up with that, take heart. Because we learn from the life of Hezekiah that a godless heritage does not at all necessitate a godless future. Hezekiah had a really cruddy dad, but that did not keep him from pursuing God wholeheartedly. He chose to follow the Lord, his God, made him his God despite the circumstances around him that could have very easily derailed him. He refused to take the path that was modeled for him by his father. And instead, he followed the path of a different role model, that of David. And that is really good news for us because it shows us that we can choose whom we're going to imitate. Now, for you, if that happens to be a godly family member, that is so awesome. That is so great. If, for you, it has to be somebody from the past who lived a good example, that's awesome, too. I mean, that's one of the reasons why it's so good for us to read the Bible because it's full of the stories of men and women who either chose to follow God that we can imitate or chose not to follow God that we can say, I don't want to go that way. If your role model happens to be a friend or a mentor, like from this church or another faith community, that's really awesome. In fact, that's one of the purposes of the church. It's for us to encourage one another in that way. Hebrews 10 says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So I encourage you, when it comes to growing in your faith, choose a mentor who will help you do these things, to hold tightly to hope, to trust God's promises, to do acts of love, to meet regularly with other people who help you grow. Choose someone who can encourage you to be faithful so that not only can you grow in your own relationship with God, but also so that you can leave a godly legacy for the people that you love who follow you. Because just like a godly, I'm sorry, a godless legacy does not necessitate a godless future, the Bible says also that a godly legacy happens to impact all those who follow you. In Exodus 20, God himself said, I, God, 
lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. It's clear in the pages of scripture that God blessed David's family because of David's love for him. And God promises also that your obedience and love for God will reap a generational blessing for your family as well. You can choose to imitate godly examples and in doing so, not only benefit for your own life, but also sow God's unfailing love into the lives who come after you, which is really, really cool. Okay, let's look at one more thing from Hezekiah. There's this event from Hezekiah that's told in three separate places in the Bible. Um, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Isaiah. And this repetition of the story three places, along with the fact that it is the only narrative story found in the entire book of Isaiah, probably means that God might want us to hear it. So, it's a long story. I encourage you to read it on your own. I'm just going to kind of recap it for you. So, about 14 years into Hezekiah's reign, the king of Assyria came against Judah. They already came against Israel. Now they're coming against Judah. Assyria was the dominant world power at that time. Again, they were the same empire that destroyed the northern kingdom, and they were basically at this point in history just kind of ransacking the Middle East, defeating nations left and right. And these were scary people. Like archaeologists, I saw them this week. I looked it up, and they were too ugh, to put on the screen, so I'm not going to give them to you, but they had found like these reliefs, you know, the, like those raised picture things um, in this land, depicting the Assyrians doing all sorts of awful things to their enemies, like impaling them on sticks or stakes to die long, torturous deaths, or flaying the skin off their victims. They would gouge out people's eyes, cut off limbs, burn people alive. I mean, these people are scary. And they've attacked numerous nations and been victorious over them, and now they are coming for Hezekiah and Judah. Anticipating this attack, Hezekiah starts getting ready. He cuts off Assyria's water supply. He starts collecting weapons and shields. He fortifies the city wall. He gathers these military officers. And here's what he says to them. He says, you guys, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria or his mighty army, for there is a power far greater on our side. He may have a great army, but they are merely men. We have the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles for us. And it says, Hezekiah's words greatly encourage the people. Now, this is what Hezekiah says to the people about the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, obviously does not share the sentiment about the God of Judah because he sends this delegation of his people to tell Hezekiah, you guys don't stand a chance. You are absolutely crazy if you think that your God is going to rescue you. In fact, the Assyrian officials, they speak in Hebrew, which wasn't their language, to the people of Jerusalem to freak them out. And they say, listen, we're going to put your city under siege. And you guys are going to be so desperate that you're going to eat your own dung and drink your own urine. It actually says that in the Bible. And I did not share that with my eight-year-old because he would totally have a heyday with the fact that the, body, the Bible used potty language, right? Um, but these people, they're like, you guys in Jerusalem, don't let Hezekiah deceive you into thinking that the Lord is going to rescue you. And then the king, Sennacherib, actually sends Hezekiah a letter then to remind him, Hezekiah, Assyria, we have completely destroyed every nation that has stood in our way, and you guys are not going to be any different. And Sennacherib points out, he's like, listen, Hezekiah, there are no other gods that have been able to save their people, and your God is just one of many. He's not going to be any different. So Hezekiah gets this letter, and here's what he does. It says in Isaiah 37, it says, After Hezekiah received the letter from Sennacherib, king of Assyria, he read it, and then he went to the Lord's temple and he spread the letter out in the temple before the Lord. 
and he prayed this prayer before the Lord. He said, O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open up your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. It is true, Lord, he prayed, that all the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations. And they have thrown their gods of these nations into the fire and burned them. But of course the Assyrians could destroy them, Lord. They were not gods at all. They were just idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, rescue us from his power. And then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. So Hezekiah, with the letter from Sennacherib spread out in front of the Lord in the temple, he prays this prayer. And then long story short, God sends a response to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah, um, promising to act. And it says, that very night, God sent an angel through the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in their sleep. And then when the rest of them woke up the next morning and found all these dead bodies everywhere, it prompted King Sennacherib to go back to his capital city of Nineveh, where he was killed by two of his own sons, just like God had said he would. Now, no explosions. That's a pretty big ending. Now, after reading about this true event, I want to pose a third question for us, which is this. Do I believe that God is big enough to fight my battles for me? And will I trust him? I really like the lyrics of the second song that we sang. There's something about he's the God of breakthroughs. You know, when Hezekiah faced the battle of his life, he went straight to God. He went to the temple, he spread that letter out, and he basically said, all right, Lord, this is really big. That's not too big for you. So I want to ask, how about you? What are you up against these days? What are you battling? Maybe you're facing an illness or a financial situation or a broken relationship that just feels so crushing and overwhelming. What would it look like if you were to take that hard, hard circumstance in your life and metaphorically speaking, of course, like spread your letter out before the Lord, your God? and ask for help, like Hezekiah did. Just spread it all out before him and say, you alone are God. If you're on our side, like, I can't be defeated by anything, ultimately, because my life ultimately is in your hands. Maybe your situation is that your faith has put your reputation at stake. You know, Sennacherib ridiculed Hezekiah. He's like, you are so stupid for trusting in God. Have any of you guys come under fire because of your commitment to God or his word? Maybe you've been shamed or even called unloving because you've held to what the Bible teaches, and that is not always popular in our current culture. What would it look like for you to take that situation in your life and spread it in front of the Lord and let him speak into it, and to let him remind you that mere humans have nothing on him? So for Hezekiah, the size of his circumstance, as huge as it was, paled in comparison to the size of his God. There was a far greater power on his side than there was on even the strongest army at the time. Hezekiah recognized who God was, the creator, the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of all the kingdoms of the earth, and he asked God to make himself known through those circumstances. And I just ask, will you and I have similar courage and trust to ask God to work on our behalf in our circumstances in such a way that other people can see through our lives how big God is. 
In Romans 8, Paul wrote these really encouraging words. He says, if God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Not one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. He is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, Paul says, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Now, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, who freely offers you the gift of his love and salvation, just for the asking, those words that I just read, that is your standing before God. He is for you. He loves you. He stands with you. He will fight your battles for you. There is a far greater power on your side. So just to really briefly recap, I encourage you to read the full story of Hezekiah this week and reflect on just three questions, maybe. One, do I take God's words and warnings seriously? Will I choose life, abundant life, that comes from following his commands? Two, who am I imitating when it comes to pursuing God? Will I pick a godly example to follow and leave a legacy for the people who are under my influence? And three, do I believe that God is big enough to fight my battles for me? And will I trust him? And will I remember that he is the God of heaven's armies and he's plenty big enough to handle whatever I face? That is all I have for you today. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for these true stories in your word about real people who came under duress and yet found the courage to follow you. Whether they had good examples to follow or not, I pray, Father, that we would heed their example and that we would also heed your words and your warnings in the scriptures so that we may choose life and have it abundantly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.